Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Good evening, everyone. It's good to be back here, and I thought that was a really good point that was made about Samson because his strength did not come from himself, and um, he probably did just, I mean, there's a great chance that he did just look like an average person, but he did not serve an average God. He served a miraculous God, and We're going to see that tonight in our text in Ephesians chapter 3 as we wrap up a couple things in um, this series. We're ending the sub-series of Masterpiece in the Making before we start the next part in Ephesians in chapter 4, which is the equipping work of of the ministry that God has for us. And we're also concluding chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 21 um, and, and there's some interesting things that, that we come to in, in this passage of Scripture, in starting in uh, verse 14. You know, one thing that I really like about going through a book in the Bible, any book, is that, um, for one, you, you don't have to search for what you're going to preach for next. I mean, it's going to be the next, the next passage or whatever is assigned to you. So that, that's a plus. But also, when you come to, to parts in Scripture um, that might be more familiar, uh, here's another reason that, that might be more familiar. Like, for instance, very foundational to our faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that is not of yourself, that is a gift of God, not of, not of works, lest any person, person should boast. We cling to those verses as a foundation of our faith as well as we should, but when you're going through that, you realize, and I'll cover it here in a little bit, uh, but you realize the condition we are in that requires us to be saved by grace through faith because Paul, you know, a lot of times people go straight to verses 8 and 9, but they leave out verses 1 through 4, you know, that really talk about who we are. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So that's, that's another great reason about going through a book. And, and then we come to another reason, which I think is tonight, when you start in, in verse 14, when Paul says, for this reason. You're like, well, what in the world are you talking about? For what reason? Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Alan covered it, and the week before that, Joel did. And really what we see in this text is, is when Paul says, for this reason, he says it in verse 14, but he also says it all the way back in verse 1 in this chapter. In chapter 3, he says, for this reason, I, Paul. So what, so what is he talking about? Well, you kind of have to go back to uh, chapter 2, and it's just kind of a culmination of things. Uh, a few weeks ago, it was probably about a month ago, one, one of the sermons in the series, uh, the one that Mark gave, talked about uh, he, he covered the passage in chapter 2 where um, God unifies the Jew and the Gentile and, and that this is a great mystery. And that great mystery, Joel covered uh, a couple, couple weeks ago, about that this is a great mystery. 
um, that the Gentiles at one point you know, were separated, uh, that they, they were not a part of the family, if you will. They were not part of this unified family. And they were strangers. It says in chapter 2, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So at one point, these Gentiles were separated, and, and apart from God, had no hope. Yet, through the sacrifice of Christ, it being sufficient, and his resurrection, what we celebrated last week, and what we, quite frankly, should celebrate every week, uh, the Gentiles were able to join in, to be grafted in to the family of God. And that's this great mystery, because in the Old Testament, if if someone who is not a Jew wanted to become a Jew, they had to become what is called a proselyte Jew. And so this great mystery that, that we see that Paul discusses is how the Gentile can join with the Jew in the faith and, and be a part of this family of God. It's a great mystery that only God can, can conjure up, if you will, and that only Christ can do through his sacrifice. And we read in verses 14 and 16 of the previous chapter, for he himself... Christ is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. And in verse 16, it says, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it, having put to death the enmity. So this is what Paul is saying when we get to our text for this reason. For all of these reasons of this great mystery, the, how the Gentile is grafted into God's family, and we're all saved by grace through faith. And it's amazing because we see Paul here, he's, he's about to give a prayer, and he's going to be uh, giving an act of praise to God. He's praising God. He's thanking God that God is unifying anybody that believes on him, whether Jew or Gentile. And so in a world that it thrives on division, then and, and even today, uh, we see Paul's desire as the opposite, and the same should be for us as churches and, and as Gambrel Street, that, that in a world that thrives in division, and even in many churches today, we should long for the unity of believers. So we enter this text, starting in verse 14, says, for this reason, the reason that I, I just gave, that God in this great mystery creates unity for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he, he's giving this act of praise of, of God doing what he did through Christ, through his atoning sacrifice, which has been covered in the previous chapters and the previous messages. So he says, for this reason that, that I just gave, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Every family. Every family through the gospel. And that's what I mentioned earlier is covered in chapter 2. That, that one point he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're the sons of disobedience. You, know, you, you, were, living, you were living in sin. You were, uh, this was who you were, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest. And then he says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love, wherewith he loved us. Because of this, because of God's grace... Because of what he did through his son on the cross, his sacrifice and his resurrection, every family 
in heaven and on earth. So the believers that have died, that have gone on to glory along with those who remain at Ephesus, everyone, all the family of God on earth derives its name. They derive their identity, they derive their name through Christ. They have God's name that through Christ. I remember growing up, <clears throat> I was told, uh, you know, repeatedly uh, several things. Uh, one of them being, uh, well, I was repeatedly told several things when I'd get in trouble because I didn't learn my lesson, but that's a different story. One of the things, though, that I was told was, um, one of the big things I remember is, be a man of your word. I remember my dad saying, really, all the only thing a man has is his word, and, you know, if if you don't keep it, you know, that you lose a lot of credibility. That was one thing. But another thing was I remember him telling me, and my grandfather especially, saying, you are a gardener. That's, that's your last name. That's your identity as, as a, in, in the family. Be proud of being a gardener. You know, don't, don't do anything to drag that name through the mud. And so I, I, those are, you know, simple words as a kid. I'm like, well, in the world, it's just a name. It doesn't really matter what my name is. But growing up, I, I, I've realized that that's important. You know, a name, an identity. Don't drag the gardener name through the mud. And before Sierra and I got married, I told her, you're going to be a gardener. No, I'm kidding. I didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't do that. I knew better. <laughs> but there is something in a name. I knew way better than do that. There is something in a name. It's our identity. It's who, it's who we are. And so we don't want to do anything to tarnish that name. Well, imagine as believers, this, our name, our identity is found in Christ. That's, that's who, it says every family for, uh, for whom, whom being God, because it's, it, he's previously mentioned God the Father, every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Our identity is in Christ. And so it, oftentimes as believers, you know, we get caught up. Maybe our identity is found in something else. If we're not careful, our identity is found in our jobs. It might be found in school, our schoolwork. It could even be found, uh, we could even idolize our family, our relationships, the ministries that God has called us, to, to which God has called us. And all these things are good things, but our identity is not found in that. We, we covered that in our last sub-series, speaking on identity. So our identity is found in Christ. And he goes on to say, every family uh, on earth derives this name that he would grant you. So there, there's a reason, and, and there's some benefits of having this identity found in Christ. There are benefits to uh, saying my identity is in Christ. I'm a part of the family of God. So it's not only just being saved to get to heaven, being saved so that you don't have to go to hell. There are many benefits of being a Christian. And he goes, in, goes into this. One of them is uh, we have grand access to the riches of his glory. The riches of his glory. This is a common phrase that Paul uses in this letter, he, he mentions as far as being God being rich. In chapter 1, verse 7, it was, um, I actually preached this text a few months back in this series. In one, chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, in him we have redemption through his blood, through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? The riches of his grace. We, we are able to have redemption 
through his blood, through his sacrifice. Why? Because he is rich in grace. Then going on into chapter 2, after he covers, after Paul says that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses, there's nothing good within us on our own, and we have no hope on our own, what does he say in verse 4? But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which, with which he loved us. Being what? Rich in mercy. God is rich in grace, extending something to us that we don't deserve, and he is rich in mercy, extending, not extending something to us that we do deserve. So he's rich in grace, he's rich in mercy, and then we come to our text in verse 16 that he says, according to the riches of his glory. He's rich in glory. He's rich in grace, mercy, he's rich in glory, and he extends these things in abundance to his family, to those who are in his family, to those he has saved, to those whom he has called. He has extended the riches of his grace, mercy, and glory. He did it at salvation, but he does it every day. His mercies are new every morning is what scripture tells us. He continually extends these things, these benefits to us. But why does he do it? Paul doesn't just leave us in the dark and says, well, he does it. He, he, he gives us the reason why so that we might live it out and so that we might uh, do something with the uh, abundance of which God gives us his glory, grace, and mercy. He says he does this so that we might be strengthened with power. Strengthened with power. As I mentioned before, we're not just saved so that we can get to heaven. I mean, that's a great benefit. We, we get to one day enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. Whenever Christ returns, we get to enjoy that. And we, there are many things we get to enjoy as believers. But one of the reasons he saves us is so that we can point others to him, so that we can be a living representative of him. And it says that he does this so that we can be strengthened. And that's the only way we can do these things is if we're strengthened how? Through his spirit, strengthened with power. That we might be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Paul knows the importance of being strengthened in the inner man uh, so that we might live a faithful life. Why? Because he, he's going to later on uh, go in chapter 6 about talk about spiritual warfare and that the Christian life is a fight. The Christian life is a battle and that we have a battle facing us even though our, our warfare and our fighting is not of flesh and blood, but of the spiritual things of this world, the spiritual realm. And so Paul knows that they, that they need to know that they are strengthened by God, by his power, through his spirit. And that's an important thing for us to know as well, that we are not just saved for our benefit, we're saved to live for him, to be strengthened by him so that we might live lives of obedience and live lives of faithfulness to him. And that can only be done through his power and by his spirit. I think it's interesting too that this prayer that Paul gives, and really almost all the prayers that Paul gives are for the spiritual benefit of other believers. Have you ever noticed that? If you, if you take time to read the prayers of Paul, oftentimes they're uh, about other or for other believers in their walk with Christ. 
that they might be strengthened, that they might know the will of God. One of my favorite prayers that Paul prays that's recorded is in Colossians when he's saying that you may know the will of God and he goes on praying for his brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that's a lesson that we can learn there, that, that we are to pray, I think, consistently for our brothers and sisters. Oftentimes, I, I know speaking at least for myself, I get caught up in my life, I get caught up in, in the, my daily uh, things that I have, and so I do pray, but a lot, a lot of times I pray for myself, and, and obviously there's nothing wrong with that, but oftentimes I forget to pray for others, pray for other believers who are struggling, pray for uh, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ here in church, that we might be faithful. And I think this is a, a great testimony of Paul that he made a habit of praying for those in the faith. Praying for those to whom he wrote letters. And this is a fine example that he prayed for their strength, for their spiritual strength to face the times ahead. But we move on and see in verse 17, he doesn't stop there. He says, why does he pray for the spiritual strength through the spirit and the inner man? He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Now, this is interesting because he's writing to believers. So the Holy Spirit already dwells within believers. At the moment of salvation, you trust in Christ. The, the spirit comes to dwell within you. So I found this interesting that Paul is saying this. What, what does he mean? So he's praying for this spiritual strength within people who are already believers. And then he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts. The Spirit's already dwelling in them. So, so what does he mean by this? As I was studying this, I came across a, a short story by a, uh, a pastor who died a long time ago um, by the name of Robert Boyd Munger. And he he writes this short story called My Heart, Christ's Home. And, and it's about this man who comes to faith in Christ. And it's obviously uh, just a, kind of a, a short story to, to illustrate a point. And he says that, you know, he, get, he gives, paints the picture in, in the reader's head of Christ coming in to dwell in a believer and as if the believer's heart was, was their house. And he says... I was talking to Christ, and Christ said, you know, I want to make my abode in you. You know, you've trusted in me. I'm taking residence now. Show me around your house. And he says, well, I'll take you to the library. And he takes him to the library, and he shows him his books that he has. And Christ says, this is great, but there are things here. There are, there are books, entertainment, things here that do not please me. And so the man says, okay, well, I'll be happy to get rid of those things because I want you to feel at home within me. And so then he takes him to the dining room and Christ says, these worldly appetites you have, they're, they're taking up your heart. They're, they're leaving no space, no room for me. These worldly ambitions you have that bring glory to yourself and not to me. So the man says, okay, I'll be happy to move that out. And then he takes him to the living room and he says, this is where we'll spend time together, just you and me communing with each other. And, and the man says, I'd love for that to happen. I want to do that every day. And as time goes on, you know, he, he does it less and less and leaves Christ waiting. And then finally, he says, he takes him up the stairs in his 
in the house of his heart, if you will, and, and he says, there's a closet. And Christ says, what's in there? He says, I don't, I don't want to open that door. There are things in there, in that closet, that, that I don't want anybody to know, and quite frankly, I don't want to uh, give up. I'm willing to give this to you. I'm willing to give my mind to you. I'm willing to give all of these things to you, but if I can just keep this, I'm 99% devoted to you. And Christ says, no, let me clean up shop. And so he cleans out his closet. And so the point this author is trying to make is that you know, he was willing for Christ to have most of him consistently as a believer, but not all of him all the time. And, and Christ had to take control of his life and feel at home, if you will, in his heart. And I think, in a way, I know that that's, that is a short story and obviously not a true story, but it really kind of illustrates the point of, as believers, yes, it's salvation, at trusting Christ to be the Lord, Savior, and Master of our life. It's a one-time thing where, where we give our hearts to him and we'll, we are sealed unto the day of redemption. We don't have to worry about losing our salvation. But we have to be reminded that every day we are to give our lives continually to Christ. And as we continually give our lives to Christ, we can't hold anything back. We can't say, God, you can have all of this, but let me just hold on to this. And that's a hard thing to do as believers. There are many times, as far as the Christian life is concerned, it is a discipline, and it is a life of self-sacrificing. As, as we heard earlier about Samson, you know, at the end of his life, he gave himself. And that's, that's the life of the believer. We are to give ourselves continually to Christ, not to earn our salvation, nothing of the sort. That's not what Scripture says. That's definitely not what Paul teaches. But we are to daily give up or get, you know, lay our life down for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. As Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. And I think that's what he means when he says, so that Christ may dwell, dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. It's done through faith. So is Christ dwelling in your heart? Has he found the dwelling place in your heart where you say, you know, I am a believer, but I need to continually, you know, give give myself over to him, to please him, to, to honor him so that he might have full reign, rule, and authority in my life. So he says, that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love. What's interesting in this passage up to this point is we see a few things. We see that the, the Trinity is brought out because starting in verse 14, he, Paul beckons the Father so he's praying to the Father, God the Father, and he's praying that the Father would strengthen believers. How? Through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. And not only that, that they're strengthened through the Spirit and the inner man, he does this, he prays this so that Christ would be completely at home in their hearts. We see this beautiful picture of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit being brought out. And when this happens, we are grounded in love, we're grounded and being rooted in love. So being rooted and grounded in love, being firm in our faith, knowing what we believe and why we believe it, living it out, our motivation of that is to be love. It, 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 our motivation for that is love, I should say. 
It's not to win arguments. It's not to try and please ourselves. It's not to try and please others or show others how much we know. It is to be out of love, being rooted and grounded in love and having that strength given to us from the Spirit. Moving on, we see in verse 18, it says, being rooted and grounded in love. Why? Why do we need to be this way? Why do we need to be rooted and grounded in love? He says, so that we may be able, you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. I think it's interesting that he says that you comprehend with all saints. This is something that all believers are to understand. It's not something that is is too high for some believers and not for others. Every believer, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a missionary, whether you're a deacon, whether you're a lay person in the church, whatever you are, whatever you do, if you are a Christian, you are to be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. But we enter into this paradox in this text. I think it's really interesting how Paul says it. He says, I want you, I'm praying that you would comprehend with all the saints the vastness of God's love. You know, there are certain interpretations as to why Paul wrote, you know, gave all these dimensions of, of the love of Christ. And, you know, I, I don't know. I think maybe the point is for us to see the vast and completeness of God's love, that it's limitless, that, that it is ongoing, that it can't be measured. I think that's what he's trying to say. But he says that you may comprehend this love and know the love of Christ. But look what he says right after that. He says, which surpasses knowledge. So he says, I want you to comprehend this love. I want you to understand this love, or I want you to know this love of Christ, but it surpasses knowledge. It almost seems a bit like a contradiction or, or, or a paradox, if you will. But I think what he's saying is he wants us to comprehend it, even though we, uh, it surpasses knowledge and, and surpasses, as Paul says in Philippians 4, 7, that the peace of God surpasses all comprehension. So he even gives us peace that surpasses our understanding at times when we're going through things and all, all of this. But I think he's saying this because he says, you're not able to adequately understand the love that God has for you. you. You won't be able to adequately understand it, but you do know it because it's in Scripture. You do know it because I'm writing to you that he does love you and that his love is limitless. This is something, as believers, I think oftentimes we struggle with because if we're not careful, yeah, we, we can tell someone how they might come to know Christ. We, we can tell them, yeah, it's not of works. It's, it's not earning God's love. But then when we become believers, I know for uh, my life, a lot of times, sometimes I, I, I live my life as if I'm still trying to earn God's love and God's favor. And, and that's, that is not how he intends it to be. That's not how it is. And so at times we don't fully, we'll never, on this side of eternity, at least fully adequately understand the love of Christ, but we can have a knowledge of it. We can have some sort of even experiential understanding of it because he did die for us. He sent his son to die for us, to be the sacrifice for us, and so that we might be partakers of his love, of the divine inheritance that he has given us. 
So we see that he prays that these believers would understand the vastness and completeness of, God, of God's love, which surpasses knowledge. Why? So that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. To be filled up with all the fullness of God. This is another phrase that, that is pretty common in this letter. Paul covers it here. He says the fullness of God in verse 19, what we just covered. In, verse, in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul talks about the uh, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So we see the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ. And then in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 18, he says, be filled with the Spirit. So we're filled through the Godhead. We have, we have this relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And here he says, so that we may know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled up to the fullness of God, so that we might daily be renewed by him, that we might understand him more and more, that we might grow to know him in intimacy more and more and more in our daily lives. I think this is a beautiful prayer that Paul prays for the believers at Ephesus, and it's a prayer that we should pray for our own lives. It's a prayer that we should pray for the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we see here, as, as I conclude, what, what do we do with this? What's, what's, the, what's the point of this passage? What's the thrust of this passage? He says in verse 20, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, So he's able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think. What was he talking about here? You know, this scripture, if we're not careful, could be taken out of context. Say, well, if I pray whatever, you know, he's, he's going to answer it and do far more abundantly above all that I ask or think. But I think it's in the context here of praying for our lives, praying for the lives of fellow believers of, of the church, that we might know him better, that, that he would grant us the riches of his glory to be strengthened in the inner man to fight the good fight of faith. And that we would be able to understand the vastness of his love so that we might be filled with him, be filled to the fullness of God. I think this is the prayer that we pray. And then as a result, Paul says, he's able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think through this prayer. Through this prayer I'm praying, he's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to to the power that works within us. That's a beautiful phrase, I think, because it shows us that he could do whatever he... I mean, he's, he's all-powerful, so he can do whatever he wills, whatever he wants, but he chooses to get his will done, his work done, through his people, through fellow believers, through the church, according to the power that works within us. The spirit that lives within us, he gets his will done through us, and he, we get to take a part in this master plan masterpieces in the making, and he does it through us. How does he do it through us? Well, we see in verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God is magnified and glorified in many ways, but I think one of the greatest ways that he is magnified and honored is through his church, through his bride, using believers in the church to get his will done. That's why, 
you know, it really irks me, if you will, when people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I do not need church. I think that's one of the most unbiblical statements that people make because, for one, we were meant for community. We're people of community. We were created for community. And to say that I don't need the church, I, I don't you know, need to be with fellow believers, learning from other believers, praying with other believers, being encouraged, encouraging other believers, that's pretty, that's pretty arrogant to say. But Paul says he gets glory in many ways, but to him be glory in the church. That says a lot right there. Colonel George Robert Hall was a pilot in the Air Force in Vietnam, and his plane was shot down. He was doing a reconnaissance mission, and his plane was shot down, and he said, I don't even remember ejecting out of the plane. I just remember waking up in a North Vietnamese prison camp. And of the seven years, can you imagine, seven years he was in that camp, six of those years he spent in solitary confinement in a six-by-six cell with no window, no bed. He just had to lay on the ground. And he talks about, he, he wrote a book about it, and he said one of the ways that he made it out, because, I mean, he wasn't able to talk to uh, other men that, that were there. What he did, I think, is very interesting. Before he went um, into the service, he was a big golfer, and he would go to the country club where he was a member at, and he would play golf, you know, pretty often, and he remembered his friends that he played golf with nearly every day. And what he decided to do since he spent six years in solitary confinement is every morning he would wake up, because he was able to keep track of time, he'd wake up and he would get up if he was not chained somewhere, he would get up and he would play a round of golf in his mind. But he wouldn't just play it by himself, he'd go in the pro shop, talk to the club pro, Say, hey, I got a tea time here, and I'm going to play it with my friends. And he would, he would play with three of his friends that he remembered back home in the States. And he said he would do that every day, play golf in his mind. But he said, one, the golf that kept him alive, it was the community that he was thinking about in his head. And he said, when he got out of that POW camp, it was because of this community that he had in his head that he was not alone to get, that got him through that. That says something very powerful about community, does it not? That we are a people of community. We long for community. It doesn't matter if you're an introvert, whatever. I mean, I would consider myself that. And I love spending time by myself. I love my alone time. But I tell you what, if I'm sick and I'm by myself, by the time I get better, I'm ready to see some people, right? We are a people of community. The power of God the way he gets so much of his work done is through the church. So let's not neglect that. Let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And as we realize we're his masterpiece in the making, I want to ask you, how will you, as a part of Gambrel Street, advance his kingdom? I think a big way is we pray for each other with this prayer. And if you're watching online or you're here today and you have not made that commitment to Christ, know that he is rich in mercy, rich in grace, and he is willing to extend that to you if you would trust him. Let's pray.
Father, as we close tonight, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you tell us here in this passage of Scripture. Thank you for being rich in mercy, rich in grace, rich in glory. And I pray for everyone here to be strengthened through your Spirit in the inner man so that we might live a faithful life for you and point people to you. And that we would be rooted and grounded in love as we live our lives. And that that we would be able to comprehend the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of your love. This love that you can give us a knowledge of, but at the same time surpasses, surpasses all understanding. And Lord, help us be reminded there's glory in the church because Christ died for the church and it is his bride. So we, may we not abuse it and may we glorify you in this church at Gambrel Street as we serve each other, serve the community, and ultimately serve you. And for anybody watching, I pray that if they're lost, that they will come to you in repentance and faith, trusting in you, knowing that you are rich in mercy and rich in grace. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.